Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Yes, yes, and yes. That's right. And we are here with a very special part two. Yes. I'm excited about this. Yes. Uh, you left us on a little bit of a cliffhanger last I did. Time. I did. Yeah. We've received some strong words. Nice words. Already? Strong words. People are like, really? The cliffhanger? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, well, uh, I'm excited to get more into that. But first, we we have to ask the most important question of the day. Mm-hmm. My love, what are you drinking? I decided to make a London fog. What is in a London fog? An Earl Grey tea, okay, vanilla, okay, and a milky, foamy little drip. Oh, okay. I just did oat milk. Yeah, but yeah, it's really good. Nice. I have one of those like once a year. I get like a really strong hankering for London fog. Well, now I have a hankering for London fog. Now I'll that you are tomorrow. making one, yeah, perfect. Well, then I'll have one tomorrow. Yes, and then <laughs> what do you have today? I am drinking. A Nebraska Brewing Company uh, favorite. This is one of my favorites. This is the Eos Hefeweizen. I don't know if I said that right. It's German, I'm pretty sure. Um, but it is a Bavarian-style beer. And Ooh. Yeah, I am excited about that. So uh, I could just read the description. It's a medium body and a huge banana-like aroma. Banana-like. That's another new favorite adjective I have. (laughs) And it creates a wonderful drinkability unlike many others. It is immensely pleasurable. Wow. They they really went all out. It also won the bronze medal in the South German uh, American Beer Festival. Wow. Wait, sorry. Bronze medal at the American Beer Festival for the South German style (laughs) Hefeweizen. So... Yeah. You really tried your best with that. I really did. I'm proud of you. I really did. I like this one. I've had this one before. Ooh, that pour. That's right. I know. Yeah. Banana-like so. and nut-like, both mm-hmm. coming out of the Nebraska Brewing Company. That's right. And two of my favorite things, honestly. Well, do you have a feel-good fact for us today? I do. Oh, good. We are returning to an elephant feel-good fact. Ooh, yes. So when a new elephant is born. We all love elephants. Yes. When a new elephant is born, female elephants that are not the mother mm-hmm. uh, will make trumpeting sounds to alert the herd and announce the new arrival. Really? Like at the hospital that we've had two of our babies at. I'm sure this is a common practice at other hospitals too. But every time a baby's born, they play a little song over uh-huh. the speakers in the whole hospital so everybody knows that there's a new baby. Right. It's like the elephant version of that. 
Oh, I that's think fun. <laughs> they had to have come up with it first. Yeah. So. Wow. Isn't that cute? That is really cute. That's, do, do, do. that's sweet. Yeah. There's a new baby, everybody. <laughs> Hello. Greet the baby. Oh, say hi. Say I hi love elephants so much. We actually got to see a couple of newborn elephants last year. Yeah. And they were like 400 pounds. They are. <laughs> And they got the zoomies running around uh-huh. when they let them outside. Uh-huh. Oh, that was so cute. We got to see that too. That was we so did. fun. The little baby elephants with the zoomies. Mm-hmm. Oh, how fun for us. What a treat. If you guys are ever in Omaha, you got to stop at the Henry Dorley. The old hooly dooly. The old hoodly dooly. <laughs> <laughs> but all right. All right. Well, now that you made us feel good about all these elephants. Yes. Why don't you address the elephant in the room? and bring us us back from the cliffhanger all right so we did in fact end on a cliffhanger last episode so i'm not going to waste any time we're just going to hop right in okay if you did miss part one then please go back and listen and so i'm going to do just a little quick refresher and then we'll hop into it so 18 year old samantha koenig was kidnapped from her job as a barista in anchorage alaska in 2012 Missing with Samantha was her ID and a debit card that she shared with her boyfriend, Dwayne. Anchorage was very moved by her case and worked hard to spread awareness in hopes of bringing Samantha home safely. After a ransom note, including a demand for $30,000, as well as a photo of Samantha was discovered in a local park, the seriousness of the case really struck the public and the investigators on the case. Hmm. Police were able to track down her kidnapper after he made a series of ATM transactions using her debit card in Alaska and then several more times in small towns across the southwestern United States. Finally, more than a month after Samantha first went missing, a man driving a vehicle that was believed to be driven by her kidnapper was pulled over in Texas. The man in the car was an Anchorage resident by the name of Israel Keys. Mm-hmm. After a search of the vehicle, there were several suspicious items in pretty much every area of the car, including an ID, cell phone, and ATM card that all belonged to Samantha. With that, Israel Keys was arrested in connection with Samantha's disappearance. So from there, we're going to hop back in. Yeah. And can I just point out how crazy it is that this guy went from Alaska to Arizona, Texas, like he was all over the he place. He really was. He, You're going to be mind blown when you realize that this is not out of the norm. Wow. Yes. All right. So hang on because this one's a doozy. <sighs> she said it. Okay. So meanwhile, police and the FBI in Anchorage were given Israel's address. When they pulled up to his home, there was a white truck in the driveway, a truck that they had actually checked out pretty early after Samantha had first gone missing, but they mm-hmm. ruled it out. Oh, wow. They didn't have a warrant to search inside of the home at this time. And so despite the fact that Samantha could be in the house or in any of the sheds in the backyard, they couldn't search for her yet. While they waited for the warrant, they could question Israel's girlfriend, Kimberly Anderson, who was a nurse at a local hospital and who lived with Israel and his daughter. Hmm. She was 100% on the defense right away. She said there was no way that Israel had kidnapped Samantha because he was home the night that she was taken and then was awake early the following morning because he and his daughter had to catch an early flight. Hmm. Israel and his daughter had gone on a cruise that left out of New Orleans. Kimberly straight up believed that there was no way that Israel would have even had time to pull the whole thing off, let alone like there were no indicators that he was capable of that anyways. Hmm. 
They also informed James Koenig that they believed that they'd found Samantha's kidnapper. James told them that he'd never heard the name Israel Keys before, and he didn't think that Samantha had any connection to this person. So a totally random kidnapping. Mm. What are the odds? Yeah, yeah. Really low odds, I learned. For sure. (laughs) So Israel was held at a penitentiary in Beaumont, Texas, while he was awaiting arraignment back to Anchorage. And so officers Jeff Bell and Mickey Dahl were on their way to question him. They decided to have Dahl go in and be the primary like lead Mm -hmm. in the conversation, figuring that he might be more likely to open up to a woman. Because when Israel was questioned by Rayburn, who was one of the officers involved in the arrest in Texas, he pretty much gave nothing. Mm, Sure. He was not cooperative, not into talking to this guy. So they thought pretty female, maybe this will help. Interesting. So Dahl took the lead while Bell went into the room as a backup and other officers listened in an adjoining room. So just as a small side note, most interrogation rooms are set up very strategically. They're usually very small and cramped with limited seating. They usually have no windows and are sometimes very cold. Mm. All of that is on purpose to create an environment where suspects feel isolated and nervous and small, which gives officers the opportunity to have the upper hand in an interrogation. And so the room that he was in, it was no exception. Yeah. Dahl and Bell entered the room where Israel was waiting for them. They opened up by showing him the ransom note. Dahl decided to take the route of attempting to connect with Israel like as a human, hopefully increasing the chances that he'd open up to her. Mm -hmm. For a while, they really didn't get anywhere with him. He was extremely smug and very confident in how he'd carried himself and how he spoke. Mm -hmm. He gave them nothing. Wow. So they left the room and they pretty much had to wait for the arraignment. The fear at this point was that the only thing they would be able to charge him with was credit card fraud. They couldn't even prove that he'd stolen the card at this point. Right. He had made up some elaborate story that some anonymous person had put a Ziploc bag in his vehicle with the ATM card ID and dismantled phone through a window that he always left cracked open. Hmm. And so how were they to prove that that wasn't the truth? Right. Once he was sent back to Alaska, police questioned Heidi Keys, Israel's mother. Hmm. She was dressed in very traditional, almost Amish clothing. At first, she was also pretty uncooperative. She basically just told police that if God wanted the missing girl to be found, then she would be. Oh. Which I hate that. Can we not do that? Can we not be that dismissive in something that's this serious? Yeesh. That made me really, really upset when I first read it. I was like, really, Heidi? Come on. You can do better. We all can do better than that. So she did confirm that Israel had been in Texas for his sister's wedding and denied that he'd been behaving strangely, at least initially. Hmm. After she thought about it and they kind of pressed her a little bit, she did realize that there were several moments during his time in Texas for the wedding. And then again, when he and his daughter had visited after they'd returned from their cruise. Hmm. So both both of the times he was in Texas. Okay. During both of these visits, he would just randomly disappear for hours on end and declined help from family who had called him when they'd become concerned because he was gone for several hours. Mm-hmm. She also told police that it was the heartbreak of her life that Israel did not believe in God. When his sister had pressed him on his faith, he had told her that he couldn't because she didn't know the things that he'd done. She mm. didn't know what he'd done during his time away, but she did have a bad feeling about it. Yeah. She noted that he did seem very off during the visit after they returned from the cruise, like just not like himself at all. Hmm. So it seemed like this guy's kind of facade was not as it appeared. 
Yeah. The next order of business was to interrogate Israel and find out what had happened. Yeah. The opportunity to get a confession from him in Samantha's case was weighing heavily on investigators. They knew very little about Israel at this point, but they've been able to make an educated guess that this was a man who was smart, who had remained one step ahead of the investigation until he began using Samantha's card, and who definitely was not going to give himself up unless he fully believed that investigators knew all, if not most, of what had gone down in this case. Oof. It's like the pressure is high. Right. They've got to get it right. They've got to be able to make some specific uh, claims and Mm -hmm. for him to be able to say, oh, okay, they actually know. They basically, without giving their whole hand away, which they don't have much, they Mm -hmm. really have very little evidence. Mm -hmm. They need to make him fully believe. We already know. So you're wasting your time and our time by not just telling us. Right. So just as Bell, Payne, and Dahl were working through their interrogation tactics together, they were informed that they were not going to be the ones interrogating Israel Keys, but instead District Attorney Kevin Feldes and Assistant U.S. Attorney Frank Russo would be taking over. Oh, wow. The investigators were not happy about this because this was their case. Yeah. And they knew there was a lot at stake if Feldes did not nail this. Right. Israel did agree to be cooperative in his interview on the condition that the death penalty be taken off the table. Hmm. He also had some other smaller demands like candy, uh, cigars, Hmm. coffee, that kind of thing. He'd be like, oh, you want more details? Get me another cigar. Sure. That kind of thing. They informed him that they would do what they could, but that they did not have a ton of sway in like the legal realm when he was talking about the death penalty, just as a side note. Sure. Okay. So the first of many interrogations began. The first one started with Feldis asking Keyes if it was best to start at the end of the story and work backwards. Keyes agreed, but he told them that he wasn't planning on going through everything blow by blow. It was obvious to the more seasoned interrogators that Israel was sort of sussing out what they knew and what they didn't know. Sure. And if they were honest, like I said, they really did not have much. Yeah, yeah. Despite searching his home and his shed in the backyard, they hadn't found much beyond the surveillance footage, Samantha's belongings, and they figured out that the phone for sure was Samantha's in the car. But that's not a confession. Sure, yeah. That's not really that much. It is circumstantial, but man, is that like, of all circumstances, Mm -hmm. you know, it's one of those things where like, for an innocent person, that's like a... (laughs) that's like a hugely stressful thing. Right. For a guilty person, I feel like that's got to be one of those things that you can say they have this, but they don't know why. Mm -hmm. So then it's, it's one of those weird backwards things like a guilty person can feel confident knowing that there's circumstantial evidence and an innocent person would be freaking out. Like, what are they going to say? Like, I didn't do anything, but it looks like I did, you know? Right. That's, I mean, that's a good point. That's, that's how I feel about it. And I'm sure that there's legal precedent to, protect both sides on that a little bit but (laughs) it definitely like i feel like he's able to be smug because he knows it's circumstantial and that he actually can't be in trouble for circumstantial stuff Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. at this point he's very confident yeah so they asked him how he knew samantha he told them that he'd never met or even seen her before they asked him why he went to the common grounds coffee kiosk he told them because they're open late He Mm. was giving them nothing still. Israel asked for the photos from the raid done on his home. Feldis did not have all of the photos on him, of course, but having a few of the photos of the search gave him enough for Israel to feel compelled to start talking. 
He basically just walked them through what they had found in the shed and was asking for everything that was pulled out of it. So Feldus was flustered because Mm -hmm. he's like, they didn't have very much. They didn't find anything in the shed. So he was trying to like play it cool, Mm -hmm. but he was also like, I kind of downplayed this a little bit, but Feldus was not super experienced in interrogations, let alone interrogations like this one. Oh, geez. So he was kind of like playing along so that Israel would keep talking yeah. and he'd be like, oh, I don't know everything they pulled out. Let me, let me like figure that out, you know? Sure. So Israel starts listing out the things they had most likely pulled out of the shed. There's a sled, a big tote, a shack for ice fishing and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. He then had them pull up a map of Matanuska Lake, which is about 40 minutes north of Anchorage. He Mm. told them that he had packed up the shack and the sled as well as bags and driven his truck to Matanuska Lake. When he got there, he needed to haul everything out. So he told them he had to make three trips because of the weight capacity for the sled. I know this makes no sense right now, but it's about to. Okay. Feldus asked him what was in the bags for each of the three trips. Israel said, quote, uh, the first day was the head, legs, and arms, end quote. Oh my god! So they're like, what? But they also can't react, right. you know? So Feldus asked him completely incredulously if Israel was talking about body parts belonging to Samantha Koenig, to which Israel replied with, yep. They literally <laughs> couldn't believe it. He just confessed. Oh my gosh. This is going to get nuts. You're going to be like, what? Okay. So as the conversation progressed, they pulled up a Google earth image of Israel's property and they pointed at the shed and showed him pictures from the shed. Yeah. Israel was confused. He told them, no, none of the stuff in that shed was used when he disposed of Samantha's remains. Feldus asked him if the stuff he used was from the shed in the photo and Israel told them, no, that's the shed in the backyard. They didn't even know that he had a second shed. Oh my They hadn't gosh. searched it, obviously. And Israel literally admitted to killing Samantha because he thought that they did. Wow. So this was completely unexpected. And Israel quickly realized the huge error that he just made. He was furious that things shook out this way. But once they pressed him with specific questions, Israel told them everything about what he had done to Samantha Koenig. And so here is that story. Oh my gosh. Can we just pause for a quick second? Yes. How... I mean, what's the luck? Yeah, it's like you don't get that kind of uh, accidental confession. Like, no, they weren't even in the same ballpark when they were talking about two different things. Right. And you get two completely different buildings. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And you get Israel just kind of like giving them a play by play. Totally. Mm-hmm. Thinking that they, well, they they obviously found this and this and this, so I'm I've been caught. I'm just going to explain what like, I did. That's crazy. That is absolutely bonkers. Okay, keep on it going. Is. It is. So, just as a as a little additional side note, everything that I'm going to say has been pulled out of interrogation conversations that Israel had with investigators, and so. Yeah, that's going to kind of be where mm-hmm. it came from. We're assuming he's telling the truth. Okay. So content warning, the next chunk of the episode and pretty much the rest of it is going to be a detailed play-by-play of what happened to Samantha Koenig. There will be mentions of sexual assault, physical violence, murder, and a pretty gruesome disposal of remains. I'm aware these are extremely sensitive topics. And so 
this, you know, be, be prepared that the rest of the episode is going to have this kind of stuff mm-hmm. spread out through it. Okay, so Israel had a large notable equipment like rack on his truck mm-hmm. that he took on and off. And so before he had gone to the Common Grounds kiosk, he had taken this rack off so that, because it's a pretty notable thing. So then he he left that at, at the property mm-hmm. and then he drove to the Home Depot across the street from Common Grounds. He took stock of his surroundings and of the kiosk and noticed that Samantha was alone and that even though there were some people out and about, the kiosk was isolated enough that he could target the young unknown woman inside. Wow. He walked up to the window and ordered an Americano. Samantha turned around to fill his order, and when she turned back to face him, he was pointing a gun at her. This is a robbery, he told her. When he noticed that she was looking at the panic button in the kiosk, he told her not to touch it because he had a police scanner in his ear, and if he got news that police were on their way, he'd shoot her right there. Mm. So Samantha did what she thought was going to get her through this ordeal. She complied with a man pointing a gun in her face, which... Who wouldn't? She really did not have mm. another choice. Yeah. So he then made her turn the lights off, give him the money from the register, and then made her get down on her knees while he looked around outside again. He noticed a car idling close by and whoever was in the car was watching. Oh. Interesting. That is interesting. Once that car drove away, he jumped into the kiosk and bound her wrists with zip ties. He then made her get up onto her feet. He told her that they were going to leave the kiosk together and that she was going to pretend that they were like romantic. They were together and that she needed to pretend like she was drunk and he was helping her home. Samantha agreed in her mind. This is just a robbery. She just needed to do what he said and she'd be okay. He asked her where her car was and she told him she didn't have one, but her dad was coming to get her. He told her not to press the alarm or to try to get away or she'd regret it. He would say things like that. Like lingering open-ended mm-hmm. threats that mm-hmm. weren't as direct as I'm going to kill you. Yeah. But they were enough like, what is he going to do? And it's really frustrating because when he's explaining this, mm-hmm. he would be like, well, I want him to have a little bit of hope. Oh, geez. Like just enough hope to keep oh. them complying. Just disgusting. Yeah. And like the desire to have that kind of control over somebody is so twisted. I can't wrap my mind around it. And this is like a, she's literally 18 years old. Yeah. Super sad. So he then grabbed a stack of napkins and he shoved a bunch of them into Samantha's mouth before leading her outside, his gun poking her in the ribs all the while as he began leading her across the street towards his parked truck in the Home Depot parking lot. Mm -hmm. While they were walking, Israel noticed a new Canon camera on the ground that someone had dropped. And he thought, hmm. That could be worth a few bucks. Oh, weird. So he bent down to pick it up, and that's when Samantha attempted to make a break for it. Yeah. Israel ran after her and tackled her to the ground, forcing her back onto her feet. Try that again and you're dead, he said. Jeez. One of the more puzzling elements about this whole abduction is that the street they walked across was pretty busy. There were businesses and traffic and people out and about. The Home Depot parking lot was well lit, and there were other people parked in the lot. As they approached the busy parking lot, he told her once again, pretend like you're drunk. So she complied. When they got to the truck, he walked over to the passenger side, opened the door, and made her get inside. The way that he had pushed her into the car was so that she was kind of sitting on her hands that were bound behind her back. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he forced the seatbelt across her lap. He walked around to the driver's side and got in. 
So the crazy thing here, I feel like I don't know exactly how to process the frustration that there were so many people. Yeah. Yeah. Like they made the point in the book that I read that there were people eating at the IHOP. There were people shopping. Mm -hmm. There were people walking and driving their cars. And this is not anybody's fault. Any potential witnesses fault. Obviously all of this falls on Israel. It's not Samantha's fault. It's not potential witnesses faults, but it is like one of those really gut wrenching things where it's like, dang it. If one person would have known. Yeah. I'm sure they would have been able to change how this ended up. Yeah. It's really sad. And it's one of those very, I'm sure like, like confusing situations for somebody like Samantha who is thinking this is just a robbery, Mm -hmm. but now she's become a hostage Right. But she's still thinking, well, this is just a robbery. Right. But it's already happened. Like it has, it has turned from a robbery into an abduction. Right. But she's not thinking that because I'm sure it's just kind of like, she's still in shock a little bit. Well, and she's trying to not upset this scary person with a gun. Right. She's trying to just get out alive. Right. So So sad. And she's so young too. Mm -hmm. Like, that that's not a dig at all. That's actually like to her credit. Yeah. She's so young and she this is probably not a scenario she's played in her head a million times. Right. You know? Right. It's just sad. Yeah. It's just really sad. So they then started driving. Israel took the napkins out of Samantha's mouth and told her not to scream or make a scene. He then told her that he was not going to hurt her. He was just going to hold her for ransom. She told him, listen, my family doesn't have any money. Like, it's just me and my dad. You're not going to get any money from my family. Yeah. He casually just like shrugged his shoulders and told her that once they realized what was going on, they'd find the money somewhere. Wow. Very callous. Yeah. Israel began to just drive all over Anchorage with no real destination in mind. A few times he would pull over the vehicle and stop somewhere for a minute. He'd let Samantha, who would remain bound during this time, smoke a cigar with him. And he would also let her go to the bathroom like outside. It's like very dehumanizing. And he would like, the way that he described it was he would like shove the cigar in her face. Like, here, take a puff. Here, take a puff. Which is like very aggressive. And like, that didn't really make any sense to me. Like, what was the point of that? I mean, he probably, I'm I'm totally speculating. But Mm -hmm. my, my guess is that he feels like if he does something like that, he's not an abusive abductor. He's just some guy. Like he's, it just sounds to me like he's justifying so many things. So if he does something like that, he's not really a bad guy. You know, he's just a guy down on his luck trying to make $30,000 off of somebody, Mm -hmm. which is like like trying to make her feel calm and relaxed. Such an eye roll. Okay, Israel. Yeah. It It is an eye roll. I'm currently very just like bewildered at this guy's uh, attitude Mm -hmm. (laughs) and actions but I'm also like frustrated already. Mm-hmm. Like, dude, if you're going to kill somebody, like why, why drag it out like this? Why make a whole thing? Cause it's fun for him. Apparently that's the problem. And we'll see this kind of unveil itself as we go. When he's talking mm. is he very much enjoys the terror. Wow. He very much enjoys it. So at this point, nobody knew Samantha was missing. 
And so at one point, they actually pulled up to a stoplight and a police car with two officers inside pulled up next to him. Oh, what? Nobody knew. No. Nobody knew Samantha was a hostage. Right. Nobody knew the suspect was a male driving a white truck. And so there was really no cause for alarm for Mm -hmm. anyone. Samantha watched the police officers, likely begging on the inside for them to just look over at her. But she didn't do anything to get their attention, still believing that if she complied and didn't upset her kidnapper, that she'd make it out of this whole thing safely. Mm -hmm. The light turned green and the police officers drove off none the wiser. Wow. Israel then drove to Lynn Airy Park in Anchorage, where once again, there were people finishing up their outing for the night. The people walked over to their vehicle parked right next to Israel's truck and loaded out and drove away. He noticed that Samantha, who didn't even have a coat on because he just grabbed her and let her out into the night, that she was looking cold. So this makes me roll my eyes too. So he adjusted her bonds. So what he did was he like made like chains out of zip ties Mm -hmm. and strapped them to the seatbelt so she could move around, but she was still bound. Okay. So he then had her lay down in the back seat and he covered her with some painter's drop cloths. It was around 11 p.m. at this point and he was not planning on ever letting Samantha go. But he was also running out of time to, as he put it, get everything done that he needed to get done. Mm. Which is, I'm going to use the word callous and brazen a lot. Yeah. So he drove to Walmart, actually, to buy a burner phone. And once again, the parking lot was unusually full of people. It was odd for that time of night at that particular store, which is why he'd chosen it. Yeah. He looked around and noticed that not only was the lot busy and well lit, but there were tons of security cameras. Hmm. So he asked Samantha where her phone was. She told him it was back at the Common Grounds kiosk. So he literally went back to the kiosk with Samantha laying in the back seat and got her phone. He then sent a text to Dwayne and James saying that today was a bad day and I'm going to be with friends for a minute. Oh, wow. Then he took out the battery so that her phone couldn't be tracked. Investigators listening to this story as he told it realized that this guy did not sound like a novice criminal at all. Right. There were certain steps he took, brazen as he may have been throughout the whole ordeal, that only somebody who's comfortable with committing crimes like this and inflicting terror on a random innocent person would think to do. Right. He then grabbed Samantha's work keys and locked up, hoping to buy himself more time once the opening barista would arrive at the kiosk the following day. He drove to another park where there were more potential witnesses that had no idea that Samantha had been kidnapped and was being held in an unassuming white truck just a few feet away from them. (sighs) Wow. This is like multiple times that he drove with her in the car Mm -hmm. to places where there were people. Yeah. And it's so, I'm just going to say brazen again. Makes me so mad. I also think, once again, we would never blame a victim for anything. And just to re-articulate this thought, she probably is still thinking this is just a, a... a robbery and he's going to, you know, use me for ransom. He's, he, yeah. It's all about money though, is mm-hmm. what she's thinking. Yeah. She's not thinking he's going to kill me. She's not right. thinking he's going to do anything else that he just wants money. Mm-hmm. So she's just kind of along for the ride in that sense, mm-hmm. not thinking through the thought of if I make a scene, run away, do whatever, especially in uh, an environment where there might be officers around. Or potential she, witnesses of yeah, any kind. Yeah. Like she really probably would get away 
or at the very least, I mean, this is the downside is how could she know that he was intending to kill her? Well, a lot of, and I, I kind of left this out a little bit, a lot of the time spent in the truck because he was trying to confuse her. Right, right. And like disorient her. She was like really trying to humanize herself. Mm-hmm. And she was really trying to like find any way to connect with this man. She wow. would like ask him questions and talk about herself. And there were moments where he described like not feeling guilty, but like he could understand that she was trying to connect with him. Yeah. Like he could rationalize that and it didn't move him, which Jeez. I think yeah. that is the thing that's the most upsetting is that you get this girl who's trying beyond all effort to preserve her own life. Mm-hmm. And to not buy the idea that you're a monster who's bent on hurting her. And he just keeps doing, keeps going along with his plan. Wow. Yeah. I just feel so sad for her. Yeah. So the two continued to drive around for a few hours and the gas in the truck was getting low. He decided to blindfold Samantha and drive her to his home before he ran out of gas. He told Samantha to remain completely still and quiet before he got out and went into his home so that he could check and see if his girlfriend and daughter were still sleeping. He then led her to his backyard shed where he forced her to sit down on a bucket that was sitting on a tarp that he'd spread across the floor, like as like a makeshift seat. Mm. He turned on two space heaters and then took her blindfold off. He then blasted metal music from a stereo he had in the shed. And he told her that if she tried to scream and alert the neighbors, that if they heard her over the loud music, that he was still wearing his police scanner. And if police were sent to the address, he'd just kill her right away. Jeez. So he moved her hands so that they were in front of her and then asked her for her address so he could go get her ATM card. And he also demanded the PIN information from her. Wow. Yeah. That is, he, he's bold. That is a bold move to do all that. In the worst way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't say that as a compliment. That is that is absolutely like the way that he's going about this. Like you said, the officers and the interrogators are like, this isn't a first time criminal. Right. Like this is cra- kind of crazy. So there's very specific strategy here. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. almost like I hate to to play into Israel's twisted little world, but it's almost like a game to him. Like it's fun, which is so, ugh, leaves the worst taste in my mouth. Yeah. So he then drove his girlfriend's car over to Samantha's home. And that's when Dwayne had actually seen him break into the car, but was scared when he saw the knife. Yeah. When he got back, he went into his house and made sure yet again that his girlfriend and daughter were sleeping. He then poured himself some wine and drank it. He poured another glass of wine and a glass of water and brought them out to Samantha. He let her have a drink. They shared another cigar, and then he proceeded to sexually assault her two times over the course of 20 minutes. He said that after he was done, she calmly looked at him and said, are you going to kill me? To which he responded with equal calmness, yes. So Samantha, composed and heartbreakingly human, calmly tried to convince him not to that she wouldn't tell on him and she might be able to help with the ransom money and all of that kind of stuff if he let her live. Wow. But Israel had his monstrous mind made up. Wow. He then put on leather gloves to conceal his DNA and strangled Samantha to death, which is extremely personal. Oh my gosh. You have to look somebody dead in the eye when you're doing that. And it takes like several minutes 
to do that. Oh. I really leaves like a like a stone in my gut. I yeah. hate it. So he also stabbed her once for literally no reason because I'm pretty sure that she was already deceased when he stabbed her. No oh, point. That's like a weird. It, doesn't that have something to do with an impotence sort of thing or impotence sort of thing? Uh. I don't know. I think that there's something. There's along something with, psychological. I feel like yeah. that has to go along with that. Yeah. I'm not a an expert by any means, but there's something about that that felt very extra unnecessary on top of everything else. Yeah. So he then wrapped her body up in the tarp and put her in a cabinet in the shed. He turned off the space heaters to slow down decomposition, locked up the shed, and went inside. Hmm. Israel and his daughter then left for a 12 day Caribbean cruise. Wow. I feel like brazen is the word of the day. I just can't imagine being so callous and confident to kidnap a teenager, assault her, murder her, and then to just take a two-week cruise. Just go on vacation. Yeah. So when the cruise was over, Israel and his daughter went and visited his mom and some other family in Texas. While he was there on February 15th, a man named Jimmy Tidwell disappeared from a small town called Mount Enterprise in Texas after leaving for his night shift. His vehicle was later found five miles from his home, but to this day, nobody knows where he is or what happened to him. Oh. A lot of people believe that Israel had something to do with it. Yeah. The next day, Israel broke into a home whose family was out at the time. He robbed it blind and burned it to the ground. He also robbed several small town banks while he was in Texas. When Heidi couldn't find Israel, these were the activities he was most likely up to at that time, though it hasn't been officially confirmed. Hmm. Okay. So Israel and his daughter returned to Anchorage on February 18th, but Kimberly was set to be out of the home also until the 22nd, which unfortunately gave Israel time to figure out what he was going to do with Samantha's body. Yeah. Given the freezing cold temperatures, her body was pretty well preserved. And so Israel cranked the heaters and, quote, thawed her out. (sighs) Makes me sick. He proceeded to rape her deceased body. Oh, no. What? So cruel. Oh, gosh. He then sat her up, braided her hair, and caked a ton of makeup onto her face. This next part is extremely gruesome, so I want to give another quick warning on that before I keep moving. So remember the last episode? It was a couple of weeks into the investigation. They got the Mm -hmm. ransom note with the photo. Right. Yeah, with the newspaper. Yes. So it had the date. Yeah. So when he posed Samantha for the ransom photo, she was actually deceased. Yeah. Despite Israel putting makeup on her and doing her hair, it like when you look at the photo. I believe the one that's circulating on the internet is a reenactment and not the real photo mm, okay. from what I understand. Cause it's a pretty unfortunately famous photo. Okay. But from what I understand, that's a reenactment. It's not real. Interesting. Okay. But yeah, he put makeup on her and did her hair. So he attempted to super glue her eyes open, but it didn't work. Mm. So he then took a curved needle and fishing line and sewed her eyes open. He then grabbed the copy of the newspaper dated February 13th. He took a Polaroid that he scanned onto a piece of copy paper. Then he typed up the ransom note on a typewriter. So like all things that are very hard to track. Right, right. This is all just a calculated ruse to attempt to get money from Samantha's family. Truly. He was unfortunately Mm -hmm. telling the truth about that. 
Wow. So, I mean, I guess it was equal parts the thrill of taking another life and it was the money. Yeah, yeah. After that, he dismembered Samantha's body as well as parts of the shed and cabinet that her DNA might be able to be found on. He burned the items from the shed and then, like he explained, took her body in pieces to the middle of Matanuska Lake. He weighted them down, set up his ice fishing shack, cut a hole in the ice, and then disposed of her body parts in the lake. Wow. After he was done, he went ice fishing for a few hours and brought home his catch and cooked it up for his family. So there's that brazen thing popping up again. Right. Just completely cold and heartless and... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just kind of incredulous at this dude's absolute lack of humanity. I know. That's, <laughs> wow. It's really hard to wrap your mind around. Hmm. So as soon as the confession was made, on April 2nd, 2012, APD and FBI contacted a professional diving recovery team to go and retrieve Samantha's remains. Luckily, it was highly prioritized to protect this moment from the public eye, so the dive team set up tents above the area where they were going to make the recovery so nobody would be able to photograph Samantha's remains. Mm. They did not want that in the news or floating around on the internet, which I'm thankful for. Reading about the divers and the impact that these types of recovery efforts have on them, like just as humans, is really heavy. Mm. I'll be recommending a book at the end that shares a lot about that, and I highly recommend looking into it. Because these people have a really hard and really sad job. Wow. The divers on this recovery worked hard to not only find Samantha, but they treated her with so much care and dignity, taking a moment of silence before going down and recovering her and looking for signs that Samantha was looking down on them from somewhere, guiding them to help them find her. Wow. After 10 grueling, freezing cold hours under the ice, she was brought to the surface. James Koenig got the news and immediately wanted to know every detail, desperately wanting to find some closure. Payne didn't give him any of the graphic information, though. So the book I read for this story said it like this, quote, Payne would remember this as the longest conversation of his life and one of the most crucial yet gentle arguments he'd ever lost. But to James, the least he could do for his daughter was to bear witness to those last hours of her life. Hmm. All Samantha's hard-won hope and promise her essential sweetness taken at random. His little girl had fought to the end. The world had been better with her in it. James wanted so badly to say goodbye to his daughter, to see her one last time. It had been left to Belle and Godin to tell James that he really didn't want to see his daughter that way. End quote. Wow. Yeah, it like takes your breath away. The primary focus in the days and weeks after recovering Samantha's body was to honor her life to mourn the intensely weighty and unfair loss, the taking of someone who was trying so hard to do good things for herself and for others around her. Samantha was cremated at sunrise on Easter Sunday, April 8, 2012, and her celebration of life ceremony was held on April 22, 2012 at her high school, West High School in Anchorage, with hundreds of people in attendance. Guests were all encouraged to wear Samantha's favorite color, lime green, with her dad sporting a leather vest with lime green angel wings embroidered proudly on it. Wow. After the service, guests gathered outside while lime green balloons were released in her memory while a local choir sang. It was heavy and emotional, but it was a beautiful send-off for this girl who was not only so loved by those closest to her, but also by the community at large who had really hoped for a happy ending. Yeah. So deep breath moment. 
So believe it or not, Israel Keys was not yet finished with his confession. During the summer of 2012, he agreed to give investigators more information about other crimes as long as they agreed to more terms and conditions. Bring me some more cigars to smoke. Don't question Kimberly again. She had nothing to do with it. And leave as much of this out of the media as possible because he did not want his daughter to know what he had done. Mm. Which like, hello, if you didn't want your daughter to know about your murders, then maybe don't murder people. Right. Like maybe don't do that. So you don't have to put that burden on her. Yeah. Like that actually makes me mad. Yeah. Like I, I really do think that he loved his daughter like for real. Mm-hmm. And I feel awful for her. I feel so, that's so unfair. Yeah. So they did agree to his conditions. Uh, he also wanted one more thing, which was a little twist. He wanted an execution date. He figured that he was definitely going to be put to death, so he wanted them to give him a date. They couldn't promise him that, obviously. Uh, So before they discussed these murders, Nelson, the FBI digital genius, was sorting through Israel's computers trying to learn more about him. She discovered photos on one of the computers. Hundreds and hundreds of photos of people. Men, women, children, elderly, tall, short, thick, thin. What? Many, if not most of these photos were attached to articles about how the person in question was missing. Among the myriad of faces in this folder was Samantha Koenig. Oh. Now, obviously, could this just be a person who was interested in learning about missing persons? Sure. Like, plenty of people are interested in and care about missing people. But this is Israel Keys. Mm -hmm. So, given what we know about him, it's more likely than not that all of these people were victims, potential victims, potential targets, all that kind of thing. But, you know, how could they even begin to prove that? Yeah. So before I tell you about the only other murders that have been confirmed, let's talk about Israel's life from what the FBI were able to figure out. So I am going to be throwing a few crimes in here that the FBI strongly believed were committed by Israel, but are not confirmed. Mm -hmm. as well as other things that he openly admitted to. Okay. I'm not going to spend a ton of time, like, differentiating between them. Um, I might make, like, a little, like, but that hasn't been confirmed statement. But anyway, I will also link the FBI timeline of crimes that they released to the public in case anybody wants to see that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Israel Keyes was born on January 7th, 1978 in Cove, Utah, to his parents Heidi and John Jeffrey Keyes. So like much of this story, there are some discrepancies on his background. Hmm. He was the second of 10 children. All of the kids were born at home and none of them had birth certificates, which I'm not sure how you navigate life without one of those in America. That's crazy. From a young age, things were not great in Israel's home life. His parents were part of an extremely strict Mormon church. And even by those standards, Heidi and John were even more extreme. Mm. When Israel was a small child, his family moved to a small town in Washington state called Colville, and they eventually joined the Christian Identity Church. So we're going to talk about that mess for a second. Okay. The Christian Identity Church is not affiliated with any one major denomination, but instead it interprets section of the Christian scriptures through the lens of white supremacy. Ooh. Yeah. The idea is that there is a two-seed line that all people are descended from. It believes that all non-white people, 
Jewish people in particular are part of the seed of Cain, who they refer to as a serpent hybrid. The future for all of these people is that ultimately they will either be wiped off of the face of the earth or they'll be used to serve all members of the Adamic line or the white slash European line in the new heavenly kingdom after the second coming of Jesus Christ. Oh, what? In the meantime, members of the Adamic line are implored to focus on bringing, quote, racial purity into the United States. Oh, my God. They are anti-government, believing that the governments are secretly being run by Jewish people that are bent on destroying, quote, white purity. Oh, that is like super just disgusting. There's so many levels of that. That's messed up and racist, anti-Semitic, like gross. So they also believe that the only way to affect political change is by use of force. So in a nutshell, extremely racist, extremely anti-Semitic, extremely toxic, and obviously super dangerous and hateful. Yes, willing to be violent, too. Yeah. The most effective means of dealing with the world is through violence. Wow. Scary. Oh, my gosh. Scary, scary. It's hard for me to believe that people actually believe that kind of thing. Like, it is very hard. I, I mean, you and I have had seasons where we're interested in learning about like cults and how mm-hmm. um, this isn't necessarily a cult from what I could find. I didn't see like a major leader. Yeah. But culty in practice, I'm oh, for sure. I mean, for sure. For sure. I've never, like I, I can rationalize how there are tactics that are used to like trap people and isolate them and that kind of thing. But that does not seem like what has happened here. I yeah. do not understand it's, buying into that and like living your lifestyle in such a way. It is such an absolute just mess of just bad, 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 bad ideology mm-hmm. that literally stems from hate. It's yeah. it starts with hate. It doesn't even start with with reading any religious scriptures. It literally start like what you just described is somebody like just using anything they could use any religious text Mm -hmm. or government text and make it say what they want to say. Sure. Is what it sounds like. Sure. Because it's all just a bunch of garbage anyway. Yeah. Wow. So all that to say, not the best environment to raise children into. Not only that, but the keys kids were all homeschooled in this environment, giving them little to no exposure to what the, rest of the world has to offer them in terms of solid, kind people, or even just a few ideas that aren't desperately evil and gross. Hmm. They did also, some sources that I saw mentioned that when they were in Washington state, they joined a school called the Ark, which I didn't look a ton into it, but it seems like it is a Christian identity church school. Weird. Like it's like affiliated with that. Yeah. So I also want to be careful here because homeschooling is not the bad guy here. But it is a factor on the pile of bad things that made Israel's childhood what it was. Yeah. Homeschooling, when it's well done, it can be a really great thing. But unfortunately, it can also be a very dangerous thing for many children Mm -hmm. across the United States and anywhere. And so looking at this instance of homeschooling, it's pretty safe to say that lack of regulations worked against the children in the Keys home. Yeah. Which is very tragic and unfair. Yeah. Well, and what you're describing right now is... Uh, a a lot of perversion of 
things that can go really well when mm-hmm. done well mm-hmm. um, or can be very filled with tons of love and kindness. Like having a, a spiritual community can be such a positive thing in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And homeschooling can be such a positive thing in a child's life and mm-hmm. in the parent's life. And both of those things put together can positively influence somebody to be a great uh, citizen in their community. Sure. And also all of those things can be used and As weapons. weaponized yep. yeah, in such a way totally. that it would instead turn everybody into not just a victim, but uh, also a perpetrator in the same way. Mm-hmm. It's It's crazy how... If it's if it's done in, in such an evil way, all of that can just be twisted into the worst possible scenario. And it uh, just what you've already shared sounds like that's exactly what happened. Yeah, unfortunately. So yeah. from a young age, Israel displayed a lot of concerning behaviors, pretty much all of the hallmarks of a potentially violent criminal. It's said that Israel pursued, quote, anything with a heartbeat. This next Mm. bit will unfortunately mention animal cruelty as well as sexual assault. So I want to give everyone a minute to skip ahead if you do not want to hear that. So Israel would find, torture, and kill animals. Pets, wild animals, nothing was off limits. Mm. If you want to know more about the details of those things, you can find them. But I would warn against looking into that because it is just really cruel and upsetting. He would also start fires. He would steal guns, and he even shot out the windows of homes with a BB gun. When he was a teenager, he told his family that he was an atheist, and so he was effectively kicked out of the family, but still remained somewhat connected to his mom and some of his siblings. Israel would later confess that his first crime was the abduction and rape of a girl that he believed was between the ages of 14 and 18 years of age in 1997. He claimed that he did not kill her. There's also the rumor that Israel was responsible for the death of 12-year-old Julie Harris in Colville, Washington, which is where his family lived. Mm. Julie was a double amputee. She had two prosthetic feet and even had competed in the Special Olympics. In March of 1996, Julie was last seen walking to church alone. People in the community, including Julie's mother, knew that Israel and Julie knew each other and that Israel knew her schedule and where she lived. Her remains and her prosthetics were discovered in 1997, and nobody has been charged with her murder. Many believe that she may have been Israel's first murder victim. Wow. Heartbreaking. 1997? That one was 96. 90- the first crime oh. he confessed to was 97, but this specific crime of, yeah. of the murder of Julie Harris is believed to be connected to Israel. Wow. And uh, Samantha... Her story is like 2012. Yeah. So he's got 15 years of. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yep. So Ugh. in 1997, a 29 year old single mother named Marlene Emerson was murdered in her home that was also burned down. A month later, her 12 year old daughter Cassandra's remains were discovered three oh. miles from their home. No. This also took place in Colville. It bears a striking resemblance to some of Israel's other crimes, and nobody has been charged with either of their murders or the arson. Wow. In 1998, in New York, 
19-year-old Suzanne Lyle was seen getting off of a bus on her college campus. She's never been seen since, and there are two men who are potential suspects, one of which is Israel Keys. In New York. In New York. All the way on the this other side of the This is going to make more country? sense. Okay. Yeah, this will make more sense. Also in 1998, 20-year-old Israel joined the U.S. Army as part of the 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry Regiment in the United States 25th Infantry Division. Wow. There's a lot of numbers mm-hmm. and words. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> During his time in the military, fellow soldiers would describe him as withdrawn and kind of shy while his superiors would call him extremely intelligent and a good soldier who would follow orders. Hmm. During his time in the military, Israel would develop quite a dependence on alcohol, and he would also dabble in drug use. Hmm. He was stationed at Fort Hood in Texas, in Egypt for a time, even. So while he was in Egypt, he was in a group that was stationed in an area that heavily patrolled borders and were focused on keeping unauthorized militant groups from entering the area. During this time, there are rumors that Israel had attacked and sexually assaulted a young female sex worker and an exchange student, stopping just shy of killing them since he knew he'd definitely get caught if he took it that far. Wow. As far as we know, he didn't commit any more assaults for the remainder of his time in the army. Hmm. In 2000, Israel was stationed at Fort Lewis in Washington, and it was at this time that he met Tammy, who was a single mother of a young son. Tammy was a member of the Maka tribe in Nia Bay, Washington, and the two hit it off and began dating. He then worked as part of the Parks and Recreation Patrol on the Maka Reservation in Nia Bay, and eventually Israel and Tammy would welcome their daughter together. Mm. While the miracle of becoming a parent didn't totally stop Israel from fulfilling his deeply dark and twisted urges, it's believed that the birth of his daughter gave him convictions that turned into guidelines. After his daughter was born, he said that he refused to harm or kill children or mothers of young children. For Mm. the entirety of his relationship with Tammy, Israel really harnessed and honed in on his ability to blend in, to never let anyone besides his intended victims see beneath his facade of self-control, his calm and professional demeanor, and his overall normalness. This guy seemed completely normal to everyone around him. Wow. Which is terrifying. Just like total chameleon. Total chameleon. In 2005, Israel began having an online affair with a woman named Kimberly, which, yes, that's the woman he was dating at the time of Samantha Koenig's disappearance. Hmm. Unfortunately, due to falling into a deep depression after becoming suddenly ill, Tammy had turned to alcohol for comfort and her alcoholism really took a toll on her life. So when Israel decided to end things with Tammy so that he could be in a relationship with Kimberly in 2007, he was given custody of their daughter. Wow. Oh, man. But before then, in 2006, a 47-year-old hiker named Gilbert Gilman was hiking in Olympic National Park about an hour and a half away from Nia Bay. When Gilbert didn't arrive to a meeting that he had scheduled with a friend, he was reported missing. His car was found in the park near a ranger station. And would you like to make a guess as to who was at the ranger station at oh the time? Oh, gosh. Israel Keys. <sighs> Gilbert yeah. has never been found, but many believe that he was another victim. Hmm. Israel moved to Anchorage in 2007 and started his construction business, Keys Construction, and quickly gained a reputation for being professional, courteous, and skilled at his craft. Without so much as a single negative review, the people that he worked for really came to trust and respect him. 
so Mm. much so that many people would allow him to do work in their homes when they were away. And some even gave him keys to their home. Wow. He really played the game. Yeah. In April of 2009, a 49-year-old sex worker who was extremely down on her luck and didn't have a home disappeared from Hackensack, New Jersey. Her name was Deborah Feldman. Though her body has never been found and nobody has been charged with her disappearance and likely death, based off of testimony given by Keyes, it's extremely likely that he was responsible. Hmm. The day after Deborah went missing, Israel robbed a bank in a small town in New York, which he actually admitted to. And it was like less than an hour or two away. I can't remember wow. the exact distance, but it was close by. Yeah. In June oh of 2000, gosh. isn't that crazy? Oh my gosh. In June of 2011, 21-year-old Laura Spirer was seen on CCTV footage. She was obviously drunk as she was leaving a bar in Bloomington, Indiana. Unfortunately, Lauren had forgotten her phone and purse at the bar and she was seen leaving by herself. Interestingly enough, the day before she disappeared, Israel had flown to Chicago, rented a car, and driven to Bloomington after turning off his cell phone to avoid being tracked. The day after Lauren went missing, Israel drove 900 miles all the way to Vermont, where he began scoping out more potential victims. So I haven't gotten into this yet because I don't want to give Israel any kind of credit. But this guy, as far as murderous jerks are concerned, was meticulous, Mm -hmm. intelligent, calculated, and very patient. A deadly combination of factors for someone with psychotic homicidal leanings. Yeah. He actually buried kill kits in different areas around the United States. What? One that has been recovered was a bucket with bullets, a pistol, a rifle, gun stocks, a silencer, a gun mount, rope, zip ties, duct tape, and Drano used to speed up decomposition. He would take these kits and put them together, and he would bury them in different areas around the United States. He would return to them later, and I mean, in some cases, up to two years after he buried it. Oh, my And he would bury them in remote locations. Yeah. Wow. That's the patience thing that is like so scary to me. I am absolutely floored. Like I'm shocked at just the degree of planning, the degree of absolute like depravity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just like there, there is we've had other serial killers on this podcast that we would say are just scum of the earth, evil. Totally. Worst of the worst. Worst of the worst. But nobody with this kind of just like desire to murder Mm. just because like, and to to plan it out whenever I see something, this planned, I always think of like, so you had in this case with bearing the kill kit, you had two years to decide not to use it. Mm -hmm. You had all of that time to decide this is not good. Yeah. This is wrong. I am stealing life Mm -hmm. from people and I'm ruining families. I'm destroying legacies. I am inflicting irreparable pain. Yeah. You have all this time. I see the amount of time and effort it takes to plan the way that he is and that, that he did 
as missed opportunities to do the right thing. Right. Really. Right. I totally agree. Unfortunately, he had one of those kill kits buried in a remote area near the Winooski River in Vermont. Hmm. He went and retrieved his kit and spent days looking around the area. One thing that he always looked for were abandoned homes and homes for sale that maybe weren't seeing a ton of interested buyers. In this case, that would come into play. Hmm. On June 8th, 2011, in Essex, Vermont, Israel spotted a man exiting his vehicle that he intended to abduct, rape, and murder, but the man got away. What? That afternoon, Israel walked around neighborhoods in the area and found a completely random home. He liked to look for victims without children, young mothers, or dogs because dogs were an added hassle. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Good for him. Wow. So noble. I roll. Yeah. So he found a home that he planned to return to later that night. That home belonged to Bill and Lorraine Courier. Bill and Lorraine had been married since July 20th, 1985. They were pillars in their community, and they had a deep desire to be helpers. Bill worked at the University of Vermont, and Lorraine worked at Fletcher Allen Healthcare Office. They were both last seen leaving their jobs on June 8th. That night, Israel made his way into their home wearing a mask and a headlamp. And he, so he sat in his car, and he mm-hmm. waited for them and their neighbors to go to sleep. He then approached their home and cut their phone lines. What? Which is nightmarish. Oh. He then broke in through a window in the garage. When he tried to get in, like from the from the garage into the home, that door was locked. So rather than breaking the lock and causing a commotion and maybe alerting the couriers or neighbors, mm-hmm. he broke another window on that door. Cause there was like a like a small window on it. And then he made his way inside. Once he was in the home, he crept around and walked straight to the master bedroom that he had made himself familiar with when he was creeping around their house earlier that day. Jeez. He like got an idea of the floor plan. Wow. Which is so like. Yeah, this is. Violating. This is the. It's, I, I don't even have words. I'm speechless. just like, I'm shocked. So he ran into their room, wielding a gun in their faces and forced them into zip ties. He told investigators that his motive with the couriers was completely sexual. He forced them onto their stomachs, onto the bed, and began to loot their home. During the attack, Israel was distracted, and Lorraine actually tried to roll herself onto the floor so she could get away. He warned her not to try anything like that again, kind of like what he did with Samantha. Mm -hmm. As he was looting, he saw a military insignia that was specific to the Army's 25th Infantry Division, the same one that Israel had been in. Yeah. He made a point to bring that up to Bill literally with the sole intention to make Bill feel like he wasn't going to hurt them. Wow. I'm going to make him think he's going to get out of this because I'm going to like relate to him. Oh. Even relating to somebody was strategic. Wow. Monstrous. He then forced the couriers to the garage and into their car with Lorraine in the passenger seat and Bill in the back seat. He made sure that their hands were still restrained behind them, and then he buckled them both in and then they left. As they pulled into the dark night, Bill and Lorraine both began pleading for their lives, telling him they have no money, Bill has medication that he needs, and that he could take anything that he wanted from their home and they'd never tell. But Israel was completely unmoved. Around 4 a.m., they pulled up to an abandoned farmhouse that Israel had scoped out earlier that day as well. He parked in front of the home and took Bill out first, 
taking him down to the dark basement where he tied him up onto a stool. When he got back outside to bring Lorraine in, she had gotten out of the car and was attempting to run away. Wow. He tackled her to the ground and dragged her in, forcing her upstairs into one of the bedrooms. As he was tying Lorraine up, they could both hear Bill screaming, where's my wife? Where's my wife? Over and over from the basement. When he got down there, Bill had actually partially freed himself from the stool that he'd been tied to. And when Israel tried to subdue him, Bill fought back hard. Wow. Which weirdly sent Israel into like a fury. Hmm. In his mind, these people were ruining his plans. Like they were throwing sure, off sure. his method by fighting back. Yeah, his whole mojo that he thinks he has. Just a loser. Wow. Just such a jerk. I can't even believe it. Which, I mean, it makes me nauseous to yeah. consider how highly one must think of themselves and how lowly you must think of someone else to yeah. have that be your response to yeah. people fighting hard for their lives. Hmm. So he then hit Bill in the face with a shovel. Jeez. But Bill didn't fall. He kept fighting. Israel hit him with the shovel. I know. Israel hit him with the shovel again, this time knocking him to the ground. He went and got his gun and shot Bill repeatedly all over his body. Bill continued to do what he could to fight for his life and for his wife as well. But tragically, the blows to the face from the shovel and the multiple gunshot wounds would kill Bill Courier in that dark, long-forgotten basement. Which is so heartbreaking. Wow. Content warning again. I'm going to mention sexual assault again, just as a heads up. So after Bill was dead, Israel went to Lorraine. He cut off her clothes with a knife, gagged her with a napkin, and put duct tape over her mouth. Mm. He proceeded to rape Lorraine twice, and then he strangled her until she lost consciousness. He brought her downstairs and waited for her to wake up. When she did... In her final moments, Lorraine looked around the dark basement and saw her husband dead on the floor in a pool of his own blood. Israel then used a rope to strangle Lorraine to death. So. Wow. That's like an added level. Yeah. Of just cruelty. Yeah. Like, let's make her last moment not just terrifying and painful, but like heartbreakingly awful. Just makes me so sad. So being the monster that he is, he made sure that she was dead by tying and tightening zip ties around her neck, like as tight as they would go. Jeez. After, can you believe that? So after both of the couriers had been murdered, he placed them into 55-gallon garbage bags. He covered their hands and faces with Drano, both to obscure their identities and to speed up decomposition. And then he rolled them into a corner of the basement, covering the bags with trash and old scraps of wood. He initially had planned on burning the house down, but because it was like starting, sun was starting to come up, people Mm -hmm. might be passing by, he didn't bother to burn the house down. He also believed that nobody would ever think to look for them at this location. Sure, yeah. And so, unfortunately, he was correct. In October 2011, the house was bought and promptly demolished, so the remains of the couriers were never recovered and never laid to rest their friends and family never getting the closure that they so deserved. He drove back to Chicago the following day and then flew home to Anchorage, resuming life as usual. Wow. So all of that was a lot, and this is getting super long. So for nine long months, 
investigators did interrogation after interrogation with Israel Keys, listening to him talk about some of his crimes, but more notably about himself. Hmm. He compared himself to his idol, Ted Bundy. Wow. And wanted to learn more about his assumed psychopathy. He talked about how he had plans to continue murdering people until the day he died, even in old age. He talked about how he really appreciated the ingenuity of creeps like H.H. Holmes and how he wanted to build his own dungeon to prolong the torment and pain of his future victims. He talked about how he had never planned getting caught so soon. Hmm. Around 5 a.m. on December 2nd, 2012, as security at the prison where Israel was being held was doing his patrols, he noticed a steady stream of blood pouring from one of the cells. Hmm. Final content warning. I'm going to briefly mention the completion of suicide and will mention the method of suicide as well. When they entered Israel's cell, police discovered he was dead. Hmm. He had slit his wrists with a razor that they have no clue how he got a hold of. He had also made a makeshift noose and hung himself. Underneath his bloody mattress was a suicide note that police referred to as rambling poetry. He had also made 12 drawings with his own blood. 11 skulls with the words, we are one, which police believe represent victims. Mm -hmm. And then a pentagram with a goat's head, which police believe represented himself. What grief. What a... Okay. (laughs) I'm going to... Censor myself. Yeah, probably smart. (laughs) What Israel took to the grave with him was so much more than mere murder confessions. He took with them closure for Mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. In all, spanning areas that police know he was active in, there are up to 40 credible reports of missing and murdered persons that may have been Israel's victims, but only three have been officially confirmed. Hmm. He also took with him the chance for justice to be served for the victims and their families. He took away his daughter's chance to have peace or closure. Mm -hmm. In a very real way, I would contend that she's a victim of his as well, even if that was not his intention. Yeah. But this double life and the, you know, terrible conclusion to it really did leave her with just as many unanswered questions as everybody else, you know? Yeah. Whether or not, you know, other victims' murders have been confirmed, like those families now will never know. Right. If he is in fact responsible. Wow. Which is like so haunting. Mm -hmm. I'd like to end with a little note attempting to honor the victims. In Samantha's obituary, her family made a special request that I thought was really sweet. And I feel like sums up at least Samantha, Bill, and Lorraine pretty well. Mm -hmm. And like what they would want. So they wrote, quote, In lieu of flowers, the family asks that you keep Samantha in your thoughts by sharing a smile and a laugh with all those you encounter. So for today's story, I read and reread American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century by Maureen Callahan. I highly recommend it because it's not this like dry, cold book of facts. Mm -hmm. It's very human and gives you a very full picture of the whole story. So I'll be sure to link that one in the show notes. I also watched an annoying amount of interrogations posted by the FBI, and those were hard to get through. Hmm. Um, but with that said, that is what I have for you for part two of the Israel Keys story. My I don't goodness. even want to call it his story because I hate him so it's, much. It's, ugh. and I don't want to call it Samantha's story either because she is not how her life ended. Right, she was so many things, right. and I talked about her. If you didn't 
listened to the first episode, I talked so much about, yeah, I gave some background on her and like things that she cared about. Mm -hmm. Like she was those things. Yeah. She was not limited to the way she died. Right. That's true for all these people. And 100%. For anybody that's suspected to be a victim of Israel's. And mm-hmm. I'm, I, I have had a couple of tangents on this podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where I have expressed some thoughts about serial killers being absolute jokes. Oh, and I don't yeah. mean that in, in any lighthearted way. I mean that in the most aggressive way possible yeah. of like, you're a joke and you need to grow up. And I hope that that dude is just rotting right now, mm-hmm. wherever he is, just rotting. Mm-hmm. Whatever you believe, listener, that that he could be, I hope that he is rotting. Mm. And it's because I think that that is just despicable in so many ways. And I'll say this too. Um, anything that that he did that would suggest any sort of uh, lacking sexually, um, I'm just going to say I think that's what it is. Mm. Because uh, I'm, I think that's true for anybody who would do any of those sorts of things. Mm. And sure, that might be like, I don't have any evidence for that, but I'm just going to say it because uh, I think that that's the most logical reason. And because I think anybody who would consider doing those sorts of things is probably lacking. Mm. And I'm not ashamed to say that. Right. I think one thing about him that is so dark to me is his ability to understand how to connect and like relationships. Like, he knew Samantha was trying to Mm -hmm. appeal to his humanity. Mm -hmm. He had romantic relationships that like none of the cracks were ever visible to his partners. He was a doting father by all accounts. Yeah. And the complete lack of empathy while also understanding to a degree, at least enough about human relationships and, um, just like the the deep innate things about humanity and not being moved by them, I think is one of the more disturbing elements. Because yeah. you get some of these guys that like, they do not at all understand the concept of empathy. Yeah. Israel does, or he did. And it didn't matter. Yeah. Didn't matter. Because what he wanted to do was more important to him. Right. Well, this was his most favorite hobby. And just disgusting. That's just, uh, I'll even go to a different place than just disgusting. That's stupid. It is stupid. That is, dude, get into baseball cards. Get into something, even if everybody thinks that's, that it's lame. Pick another hobby. Good grief. Like, it just makes me mad to think that someone with so much success, with uh, so much, uh, maybe intelligence. I don't know. Maybe he's a moron. Good at faking it. Maybe faking it. Right. How intelligent can you be if this seems like the right thing to do to you? Right. There, there comes a point where your intelligence gets called into question because you're choosing to do something. So, so dumb. You might be good at it. You can be good at anything, but you might still be a total moron. Mm. Uh, so I'm just, 
I have a lot of angry feelings about this kind of a thing. And especially with the way that he went out and I'm, I'm just, I'm not someone who will jump to the conclusion for anybody who has those kinds of, of, uh, dark thoughts that suicide is some kind of an easy way out. Mm -hmm. I don't jump to that conclusion ever, but for somebody like that, who had to take his own life and leave behind, uh, three different ways of making a statement. What a loser. Mm -hmm. What a tool to have to do all that. So that's me grandstanding, I guess probably, but at the end of the day, those are my feelings about this kind of a person is you have so much promise, so much ability to do great things. And instead you choose to be an absolute idiot. Well, and the other thing too is like, he also had so many opportunities to be done. Yeah. He could have said. Yeah. He could have sat there and watched Samantha in her kiosk and said, this girl is barely just a couple of years older than my own daughter. Yeah. And I can't imagine how sad I would be and how just crushed I would be. Yeah. If somebody did what I have planned on doing to this girl. And so I'm not going to do it. And you know what? I'm going to spend time at home with my family. I'm going to get a different hobby. Yeah. You know, he had, I always, I always see in moments like that, all of these opportunities to not. Yeah. So I don't know. And I purposely did not include much about his daughter because I'm sure that poor girl, I mean, that would be so hard because she never saw that in him. Right. She never saw any of that. I'm sure that this is still so painful and shocking to her and it will be something she has to carry for her whole life. Yeah. You know, I purposely did not bring her up. And none of it's her fault. No, like no. How how could she have ever known? No, or Kimberly's or Tammy's Hmm. or Heidi's. I mean, I, I question all of Heidi's parenting, but Heidi did not turn him into a murderer. Sure. He chose to do that. Yeah. Could yeah. she have maybe not let her kids be in a cult? Yeah. Sure. Of course. <laughs> she, duh. Was also, she was also in a cult. Yeah. And there's, we could unpack that all day. Let's not but. do that. Cause that'll take a long time. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just a really sad story and shockingly under discussed. Yeah. Wow. Well, for our listeners, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling and unsavory story today. Uh, just all of them. I'm not even going to try to rate this. Mm -hmm. Please make sure that you are subscribed to our podcast on your favorite listening platform and that you leave a five-star review on that platform. It helps other people find this podcast who might be interested in these sorts of stories. And also make sure that you follow us on social media. We are on Instagram and TikTok at This One Is A Doozy. And on Facebook, This One's A Doozy Podcast. You can also email us at thisoneisadoozy at gmail.com and uh, let us know your suggestions for other episodes, any feedback you may have. And you can connect with us on Patreon. How can they do that, my dear? Yes. So you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com and search This One's a Doozy podcast. And for $5 a month, you can support what we're doing. And listeners and subscribers on Patreon get access to polls to vote for episode topics, 
and they also get to vote for our monthly cause, charity, memorial fund, or what have you that we are going to be donating to. Mm -hmm. And so if you're interested in any of those things, please go check out our Patreon. Yeah. Well, with that, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time on This One's a Doozy. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.